Hi, I'm Sarah Smith, and this is Girls on Film Podcast. This is part three of my series on the Buffalo Band, The Wild Nights. Today, we talk to Mr. Ken Doino and Mr. Mike Bellman, lead guitarists for the Buffalo Band, The Wild Nights. Started, I started recording. We we can edit. Did that refrigerator fall on you, Ken? <laughs> Did the refrigerator fall on me? No, that's probably my desk. I got a little oh my metal, God. Metal desk oh. here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want you to get hurt. No, because I don't have insurance. You'd be like, I'm suing Sarah. I hope you have insurance. <laughs> I don't. I actually don't even have health care right now. I'm oh, gonna have to. No. Are you serious? I yeah. I'm going on Obamacare. Oh <laughs> Please oh don't get rid of Obamacare. Yeah, it gets It'll probably be Biden care pretty soon. Yeah. yeah. I don't care what kind of care it is as yeah. long as it's care. Yeah. As long as it is um, a Trump care. So thank you guys. <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining. Um, I think you guys have a little bit of an advantage because you got to hear the other two podcasts. They were okay. so much fun to listen to. Really? Oh, yeah. You got, you got something out of it. All right. Tell me. Oh, yeah. Mike, a lot Mike, out of it, actually. Mike, <laughs> tell me one of your, tell me something you thought was interesting that you heard. Well, I was a bit surprised how, uh, although it was true, what happened during that first practice or tryout was uh, playing, <laughs> playing up to Ken's <laughs> volume. volume. Yeah, that was kind of funny how everybody was kind of. A bit of a rag on that, you know, but oh yeah, uh, but you had the equipment, that's for sure. We all had to try and match it somehow. <laughs> yeah, it got it was a nice role reversal when I showed up, uh, you know, last Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've kind of taken that role. Now. Yes, yeah. You're, so, so Mike is <laughs> Mike said. is the loud one now. Yeah, that's what they say. You know, if you got the stuff. <laughs> You gotta gotta go. Uh, it's probably thirty years of rock and roll. I'm probably my ears aren't in great shape anymore. That's I guess right. I that's right. So here <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to jump in and just tell everybody that we are listening to um, uh, Ken Doino and Mike Bellman, both who were lead and rhythm. Forget you guys. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> both who were lead and rhythm guitar players for sure. the Wild Nights, and. Um, it was fun because I got to stand in between two really handsome guys every time we play. <laughs> Lucky me. Ah, uh, shot. Seriously. That was fun. I had a good time. We had a great time. Now, I wanted to ask you two, you know, 
a, a little bit like a little bit like DJ Bonin and Corey Kurtzy, you guys, you know, you didn't finish each, each other's parts, but you played together. How did you, you know, we talked about set lists a little bit. Me and Ken talked about set lists a little bit, but how did you pick songs? How did you work together? Because it seemed like you worked together very well. Me jumping in a little bit later because the the band was around for a year and a half or two before I jumped in. Um, they had uh, a, quite a variety of tunes uh, picked out already that they that I um, I just had to pick up and learn on the fly. Uh, the Grateful Dead stuff was a little bit easier for me to pick up on because you know that's what I had been listening to for a while. Um, the Genesis, the Pink Floyd, things like that. It took a little while, but it was. Uh, it was a nice challenge, you know. Does that sound about right, Ken? Yeah, well, I have to say, you know, we had what I would say a very mid-range driving band that had a lot of power and strength and rhythm. And so when you talk about us both being rhythm and both being lead guitars, what Mike did is he brought in this treble range of uh, of melodic guitar playing and his skill level on how to play solos and how to really get this um, upper uh, upper frequencies of sound really filled it all out. I mean, and it was playing a different guitar with the with the instead of a humbucker with the single coil pickup right, to right. you know the metal cone speakers. Yeah, Telecasters will do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so it it, all, it rounded out the sound, and then Mike's skills on lead were were far superior to mine, you know, frankly. So it allowed me to actually step into rhythm more, um, and which was a lot of fun, frankly, because yeah, it's hard to sing and play guitar and you know um, try to do the organizing and keep people together and. 
it allowed me to play more with the drummers because Mike just had that covered. And then the other thing that was totally awesome is Mike sang beautifully. Yeah. So we could trade off singing and it wasn't no longer just me singing, tearing my voice apart over the course yeah. of the Yeah. Yeah. And then when Sarah came in, it just really filled out the, the vocals, you know, it was yeah. so nice to have that, uh, that female presence up there. I thought, Yes, you know, made it more Donna-like, you know. <laughs> I was really into the dead. I just loved that whole setup. Well, and both of you had a really great capacity to pick out harmonies, too. So, <gasps> it, you know, it's one thing to be able to sing a chorus on your own when we were doing the rhythmic stuff, but then to be doing things where all of a sudden it was all three of us singing. Yep. And that was really special stuff. You know, when you say, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be, and it's all three of us belting that off in harmony it makes a real big difference yeah you're right it's powerful yeah it is was reading something about um, guitar players' brains, and they say that guitar players' brains are totally different than other musicians. Um, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell, well, us, tell us how we're different. Always <laughs> felt that a little different. <laughs> yes, yes. It said, basically, that you have a little bit of a prescient sense of what is happening with the music and that your, uh, your neural networks synchronize before you play. So mm. they talk about a little bit about, you know, shredding and how shredding is a place you go in music when you're using unconscious thought. You're not, you're not directly thinking about it. You're just going with your intuition. And uh, it's said that the best guitar players are very intuitive. And, you know, everybody, check, check out Ken online, Ken Doino, because he is an architect and very talented. And Ken, I think some of that intuition shows up in what you do with your work. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, of course. Yeah, and I would say that um, DJ talked uh, sort of two different categories to think about in this regard that your your research and thinking um, brings it to my mind. One is that DJ talked about being in the zone. And one of the things is you would, as you were up there playing, your ears are working so hard, your, your muscles and, and arms and your coordination starts to kind of go on its own. Yeah. But what was fascinating is you couldn't see at the same time. So if whether you were at the microphone or whether you were looking back, your eyes shut down to a certain extent. So it's like all your other senses are working so hard that you start becoming kind of stage blind, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I always remember that people would be like, oh, you were looking right at me. You know, that was so great. You saw me <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, whatever you say. Yeah. Right. 
Because you couldn't see a, you know, you couldn't, you know, not only were the lights in your eyes, of course, but, you know, it's just your, your, all of your mental capacity is going towards your um, sense of rhythm, which is a physical feeling inside of you. And then you're, you know, what you're doing, what you're trying to remember, what you're trying to draw forth, the story you're trying to tell, projecting outward. So you're not focusing at all on what's happening. So I remember that kind of zone, which felt like a certain type of blindness in many ways on stage. Um, The second thing was this idea that Corey and DJ were talking about of of listening um, and collaboration. And I think of all the things that mattered so much to me in the band and what has informed me as an architect is this idea of, of the sound being something that happens collaboratively, that um, it's not anything you do yourself. It's what you do with others that ultimately matters. And it's what you do as a collaborative, as a collective of, of people and you know, for architecture, that can be a community, that can be an owner, that can be the contractors, that can be the craftspeople in the field, that can be the city officials, you know, and the infrastructure, you know, that makes up a city. And, you know, all of that, um, and my colleagues, you know, it takes a lot to build a building. Certainly, you know, it takes a lot of people and a lot of hands and a lot of thinking to make things uh, work. And so right. that collaboration was part and parcel. Uh, well, it was fully dedicated to um, how we ran the band and how we worked on stage together. You know, that's so interesting because when when you and Mike were playing together, um, there was it did not feel at all like there was a fight or there was ego. Um, I was looking online about bands that had two lead guitarists and I found this really amazing thread from this guy who was very panicky. And he said, Oh my God, the band wants to bring in another lead guitarist. (laughs) What do I do? So Ken, it sounds like you didn't have a problem welcoming Mr. Mike Bellman. No, not at all. I think, you know, boy, you talk about not ego. I, you know, I didn't feel like our, band had those ego challenges and right. I think that um you know that's had a lot of different manifestations and you know some also including after I moved on that Dave Ruck was able to return to playing guitar but when all three of us were there all three of us were guitarists and Dave said well Mike Bellman plays guitar you know beautifully and Ken's standing up there singing and it's it's hard to sing and play bass so Dave says I'll play bass I mean, talk about, you know, a generous move ultimately. And he was awesome on bass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now he's awesome on guitar. You know, he's a full time professional musician. Yeah. He's, he's an incredible consummate, you know, professional. And, uh, but even back at that time, that was an extraordinarily generous thing. Yeah. I didn't know how well Dave played, you know, because I had never really heard him on guitar, uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then, I found out he kind of was into, uh, oh, I thought it was like Jimmy Page and that kind of stuff. And he, when he broke out the guitar and started playing this stuff, I said, wow, you know, this has been inside you all this time. It's never come out. It was uh, amazing to me. And then he could pick up, uh, we called him the sponge, remember? He could just pick up anything at any time, and it would be in his head forever. 
you know. His neural, uh, net, his neural networks were synchronizing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And yeah. uh, I don't know how he does it. He was born with that gift, you know. Well, and it's interesting you use the word ego, Sarah, because the opposite of ego is empathy, right? Right. And, you know, empathy is, you know, what you would feel on that stage. You were sort of having this empathic connection with each other, right? And, and that could be Joe Belanti smiling and, you know, just having a blast. And you could, everything about him said, I'm having a blast, you know, and, and you could just see that in everything he was doing. Um, to, uh, people just having a, you know, putting it all up back out there to the audience and being em empathetic with the audience and the dancing and the rhythm and the groove and the energy really was a special thing. Mike, I want to ask you, because we were kind of, we didn't know where you came from in the, in the last podcast and they talked about, uh, is it Phil Brutman? No, not yeah. I remember hearing what that. And, uh, how, thinking, how did you get? Well, it was close. The he, band. Phil was one of the managers, and uh, but the first manager we had was Mark Kramer. Yes, and um, yes, Mark made a connection uh, by uh, seeing me and Mark Marzak, who ended up in the band for and still is uh, for a number of years. He, yep. Mark, myself, and a friend of mine that lived down the road, Mark Hirsch. Uh, we got together in uh, Jerry Stern's garage for a little party, and Mark Kramer showed up later, and he, he said, oh, you, you guys sound pretty good, and Mike, I, I got this band that I'd like to connect you with, you know, and I said, uh, well, all right, why not, you know, give it a shot, yep. and that's when I went over to uh, DJ's basement, uh, I don't know, with <laughs> yeah. So wow. yeah. that, that must have been a hard decision if you were playing with the with the three other guys, though. No, that was just that was just that was just jamming. It was just a throw together type situation. Got it. Oh, it's good. No, so there wasn't no, any no. any sense of loss there then. No, no, none at all. Well, that was a good that was good insight on Mark's part. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mark. Okay. Tell can tell the world a little bit about Mark Kramer, please. You know, I'm, that's fascinating to hear that. I mean, what I would say about Mark was that, you know, he cared really deeply about music and wanting to make a scene, make a scene that everybody could get together and enjoy. Um, for a host of reasons, he was certainly a pleasure seeker <laughs> in yeah. every respect, I think. And, you know, he also was a huge deadhead. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah he was on every tour. He's, he saw hundreds of shows by that time. <laughs> Yeah, and I think even in doing that, he he had this mythology in his head about what a manager does and how that gets organized and that there was real value and, and almost heroics in making things happen. Just like, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was the case. and I'm sure that was the feeling of um, people who made the Grateful Dead happen from the flatbed trucks and, you know, Golden Gate Park to the albums to all of a sudden having this show go on the road and creating a moving village around the country. So, uh, you know, Mark just, I think, was motivated to see how could that happen here? Could I do something like this? And uh, the fact that it was this music, the fact that it was uh, this group, he was trying to construct that in his own world. And uh, he did a lot for that. So he got us playing in a lot more places. He got us out. He kept the excitement going. He, he organized those things, um, sometimes through cajoling, sometimes through 
you know, I mean, we made a lot of fun of him, I do believe, in back in the day. I yeah, <laughs> Oh, remember at Bar One, which was he didn't which our first professional gig at Bar One. Remember the uh, old Bona Vista? Totally. Uh -huh. Yeah, and they had that little backstage, which was a kitchen behind the stage or something. And uh, yep. all of a sudden, Ken breaks out uh, St. Stephen. <laughs> Mark will come running from the back. Oh, he, start, he almost started crying. You know, it's unbelievable. Jesus. I'm so glad you said that because I want yeah. to ask you what, give me a couple of tunes that were your favorite to play on with the Wild Nights. Well, back in that day, I would say with uh, you guys, I would say right. Eyes of the World was my favorite. Yeah. Ah. yeah I like that a lot. Eyes yep. of the World. And did we do Wake of the Flood? I think we might have done we that did, too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the harmonies and you know that that whole feel. I just, I guess, I love that album. You know, that Wake of the Flood. Album. What about you, Ken? Yeah, there's a couple of them from that album that are fabulous, but um, or even of that nature, like Birdsong. I think my favorite to play though was probably uh, Scarlet Begonias. I think that was just always had such a great groove to it. <laughs> think about that groove um yeah have you, so much fun. have you guys been listening to to more dead recently because we kind of revisited all of this a little bit i know i have been yeah i have uh you know since there was talk about of a reunion yeah i dove right back into it yeah yeah, yeah. i've been playing blues for the last eight ten years and really dove into that, tried to learn that genre, you know. But uh, after, you know, listening to some Jerry music, uh, I, I feel like diving right back into it. It's just it's in my bones. I don't know. I just like <laughs> the way he plays. I love the way. I mean, absolutely my favorite guitarist to listen to. I mean, hands down. And when he's playing even far away on a distant radio, you're like, I hear Jerry Garcia's guitar. It just. Yes pierces through everything it's interesting because he's he's not really he's not really acclaimed 
in a lot of circles as being the one of the greatest guitar players. You know, it's Jimi Hendrix, Clapton, Jimmy Page, BB King, Jeff Beck, Gilmore, Keith Richards, Chuck Berry, but really Jerry Garcia doesn't really pop up in that. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to put their ears down, but I. I think a lot of people think he just noodles around. Right. But he's, he's actually. He's you know he's constructing a solo and uh, extending it uh, like no other can. If you ask me. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it's it has to do with how people think about you know greatest. Right. As sort of a known melody or a consistent sound. Yep. And the fact of the matter is, he was he was the most melodic and consistently, perpetually inventive guitarist, um, never staying still. But because of that, not playing the same thing over and over again, never doing the same solo, he wouldn't have those sort of epic signals. And but could you imagine how boring that would be, considering how much they played? <laughs> Yep, definitely kept it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that whole dead uh, concept was about that, you know. Yeah, Those really two was. shows were the same and all that. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was, it was about a different thing. And, you know, if you think about the, you know, the conditions of how, how music is thought of and the greatest, the greatest pop song, the greatest Broadway show, the greatest folk tune, it's always about this consistency. Dylan caught a lot of crap for that, too. He would go on tour and he retool his music to however he was feeling and how he wanted to retell the story on this song or that song yep. or whatever felt right for his vocal range at that point in time in his life. And, uh, and he took a lot of crap for that, but you know, he knew what he was doing. You know, I'll tell you a story really quickly. Um, and I learned about this several, just maybe four or five years ago, my mother was visiting and I was listening to, uh, Johnny Cash in the car with her. We were driving around and she said, oh, he was so polite. And I was like, what? What do you mean he was so polite? And she said, he was very nice. Your father produced the Newport Folk Festival for the first four years that it existed. And she said, you know, I, I went, I went to the second one where Mr. Dylan went electric and while wow. right while while he was there doing that, I was backstage with Mr. Johnny Cash, and he was just so lovely to me. <laughs> if you travel it in the North Country Fair, where the wind hit heavy on the boat. my father had produced the Newport Folk Festival when Dylan went electric. Um, 
she told wow. she told me that he freaked out because everybody was booing and he's trying to make sure everybody has fun you know he's the he's Johnny, the this is your dad or johnny cash was my dad you. my dad he was he was from wow. wbz in boston and he was a big folk lover and played guitar and that's how i got into singing actually as a little kid was because he would play guitar and i would sing with him <laughs> but um ken your dad your dad was a very big fan of you playing guitar and was very supportive and came to lots of shows i remember yeah, i remember i don't remember your mom so much i remember your dad being in front and dancing going crazy they were they would both go, but they were super yeah. supporters. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh yeah, um, your dad was a great guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, great guy. Sorry to see you went. Um, yeah, I, I I've read up a little bit about him uh, with his history with Mark Twain, and that that guy was very passionate with what he did, and it, it kind of rubs off on you, kind of. You see where you get it from. <laughs> well, he he loved teaching. He loved being around other people. He just took joy in storytelling and knowledge and um, and whatever form it took. So I think that and, and you know and he, that went that goes back into sort of as an early you know kid. I remember him. We'd have sleepovers and he'd tell ghost stories and you know he, he was just a lot of fun for everybody to be around. And I bet he, you know when it came to us doing all of this. He's, he didn't write himself off. He said, I, you know, I'll show up. And uh, he would we would tease him. He would tease us about embarrassing us and as kids, too, you know, as teenagers especially. Um, <laughs> but there he was with the bug spray when it came time to get to <laughs> <you> know. <laughs> Rieger's Farm. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Mike, how did you pick up the guitar? Well, it's funny that you talked about your dad and uh, you singing along with him and all that. That's how I got started. My dad was into uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Dylan, and uh, oh, let's see, Pinkston Trio, that kind of stuff. It. And I don't give a damn about a greenback dollar. Spend it fast as I can for a wailing song and a good guitar. The only things that I understand, oh boy. The only things that I understand. When I was a little baby, my mama said, Hey, son, travel where you will and grow to be a man and sing what must be sung. Oh, boy, sing what must be sung. And I don't give a damn about a greenback a dollar. Spend it fast as I can. For a wailing song and a good guitar The only things that I understand Oh boy, the only things that I understand And uh, when I was, you know, five, six, uh, I'd be around the house listening to him and his buddies uh, playing And uh, so I just had to do that And by the time I was 11 um, or 10, I think it was about 10 I started picking up his guitar And so uh, luckily my mother who had uh, putting the other brothers in uh, for piano lessons, she knew that that wasn't going to work for me. I was just too cool for that, you know. Yes. And and so uh, she said, how about guitar lessons? I jumped right at it, you know. So I took uh, lessons for about four or five years till I was 15 or 16. And then the uh, the guitar teacher said, uh, 
I'm tired of taking your three bucks a, a week here every every hour or whatever it was, three bucks an hour, because uh, you only want to learn what you want to learn, you know. And when I learned it, I, I did it pretty well. So I just kind of played by ear from that point on. What does that mean? Uh, I, I don't read music. I, I can read tablature, but I can't read music, you know. So that's amazing. I just play by ear. That's amazing. Yeah. How about you, Ken? Would you say you are you a reader? Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I think I started with reading. So I started uh, taking lessons and then started playing classical guitar actually first. So I uh, started actually with saxophone, which, of course, was single note reading, um, and then started to learn chords in my initial lessons on steel sting, but string. But then I started taking classical lessons. And I found it very challenging to do, you know, um, uh, multiple voices reading wise. I was never a good sight reader. And so I would say that when I picked up the electric guitar and, and that whole scene came forth with the Wild Nights, that was a big release, frankly, because I did not feel like I was slowed by my capacity to read music. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I think Joe yeah. was the only big reader in that band. I would say that was, yeah, yeah, that's where he came from. Was that class? And he's the only rocket scientist in the band, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's good at many languages, I'm sure. <laughs> um, now, in that time when we were in Buffalo playing, um, there was a lot of emphasis on folk music, even on the radio. And I, I think that um, some of that influence is, is really interesting. Um, I know that my dad was, a, you know, he was a program director at WKBW and they were number one for a long time. And they never changed, like until, I don't know when they changed their format, but my whole the whole time I lived there, they never changed their format. He created it and that was it. Um, but why, why the folk music in Western New York? Why is it so popular? Hmm, I don't know. I, I really don't, I can't compare it to other cities because I don't know how it went over in other cities. You know, uh, If you're thinking that it was more popular in Buffalo. I, I, I you know, know, I went, I moved to New Jersey uh, when, I was a sophomore in college to go to Rutgers and it was, the music was totally different. You know, it was like lover boy and Van Halen and just completely different stuff. Um, not, you know, nothing, nothing like, like Buffalo, nothing. And, um, and then of course, moving to Atlanta later on, it was country, um, really, really, and I love country music. So, but I definitely think there was something about that. Well, that, you know, that was the best part about the dead, Sarah, was that they, they uh, incorporated yes. all those sounds into the music, you know, folk, country, jazz, blues. Yes. Bluegrass. Yeah, when there. you talk about folk, I, I, I think about KBW and, they, I remember this album we had, which was, you know, big, a big sort of American flag number one, WKBW. Oh my gosh. Uh, do you remember this? <laughs> yes, yes. And 
and it had all these top hits, but they were like um, riding the line, and they were yeah. like, uh, gosh, I don't even remember what else was on there, but they were, I would say, transitional, you know, too. They were not yeah. just pure folk; they were folk pop, I would yeah. say. Yeah. And um, and so to Mike's point, you know, which is very much where the dead were transitioning from folk music into all these different realms of of uh, rock and roll. Who who was getting the gigs in the beginning? Was it it was Mark Kramer? He was getting the gigs. Well, I think as Mike said, that was when when Mike came in. But I think after Rieger's Farm, before Mike arrived, I think Phil and I think before that we were doing it on our own and. So like the, but I don't know, Mike. Were you playing when we played Tonawanda Creek? You were playing at that point with us. I played one of them. I played the last one. I think, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's how right. many were there? Total um, three, maybe. I think we were putting them together, kind of self-produced in many ways. Phil, Phil was doing some of that, uh, maybe in between. The initial ones were just us doing them, hauling the stuff around, and we had the van, and we're you know state you know stealing everybody's ping pong tables and. Milk crates to set up. I forgot pages. about the van. <laughs> Buffing it all in and getting to wherever we're going and, and oh, renting yeah. a, a PA system that would also arrive with the board and with Paul yep. Special yep. to run it. Um, yeah, that was amazing okay. that we made money. We made money. Those guys. We made money. <laughs> but that shows you how what money. kind of a draw we had. I think I got, <laughs> I think I got <laughs> 10 bucks. <laughs> Any money was good. I don't think so. I think that we were, I think we split evenly. I, I, don't I think we split it evenly. Uh, well, I had, I had the luxury of not having to set up any equipment. We got more important things to talk about so, than money. <laughs> that, that was a luxury. Yeah, I, I would sit at say. the bar and have a beer and watch you guys set up all the equipment, which was fun. And every once uh-huh. in a while, you'd be like, Sarah, could you plug that in? <laughs> sure. No problem. Paul was amazing, though. To have Paul, Paul was he was got into this early, and um, he he had really gotten into the sound and having fun with the board, and uh, like the Tonawanda Creeks, he was a big part of creating these atmosphere uh, atmospherics. There, um, it was really neat to have a sound man who would travel with you too before too long. <laughs> You know, by the time Mark probably arranged like the Trafalmador, you know, cafe downtown, which was probably one of our, the nicest yeah. venues we played at. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, I think, I think that was kind of in the later days. That was more in Mark's uh, Mark's job, and he was the one who would hand us the money at the end of the night. Yeah. You hoped he would, <laughs> Mike. I hope I hope he handed you money too, Sarah. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember getting any money. I probably did. Um, Mike, tell me what what you think. What what show that we did together was one of your favorites, yeah. and why? Well, here's a here's a good memory. How about uh, 
since it's like an Atlanta type day up here. Okay. Do you guys remember playing at Khakis at Winspear and Bailey? Wow. How hot that was. The water was just streaming down the, the windows and it was a steamer. <laughs> and uh, I did my usual thing. You know, I, I had to work until probably nine o'clock and you guys were all set up and actually probably playing your first tune by the time I, I got set up and joined in. Um, but I was going to ask Ken, did you guys play Squonk that night? Do you remember doing oh, that? Yeah, we probably did. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. I think I remember that. Ah. Yeah, good old Genesis stuff. Yeah, and uh, another tune I remember that night was uh, Low Spark of High Heel Boys. Ooh. By Traffic. <laughs> that, that was kind of fun. <laughs> but that one just kind of stands out for some reason. Um, partners gigs were great. Remember the two in a row? Uh-huh. Yep. yep. The, the double Thanksgiving back to backs. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't even talk, couldn't even whisper at the end of those second shows. I I got to get the recordings of those if any either of you guys have them. Uh, I might, um, if not, Corey probably does. I have the cassette right. somewhere. I'll have to find them. Gotta find it. You can send oh, it yeah. to me, and I'll take. I'll digitize it. Well, speaking of speaking of taping, after one of those partners gigs, I think it was, um, we were over at Phil's house. Remember uh-huh. where the barn yeah. was? We practiced at. Yep. Well, uh, this is like four or five in the morning. Of course, we had breakfast and everybody went their ways. And uh, Phil was obviously living there. And uh, I went up to a bedroom and started playing music with uh, Ray from Rochester. You remember Ray? I do. Yeah, Ray. He would be standing there. And this is when I knew the band made it. You got this guy standing there with two pitchers of beer, one in each hand, and he's rocking back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) And... I'm thinking, oh, man, we, we finally got a groupie. This guy comes to every gig now. He's really into this, you know. And then he'd start talking to equipment. Yeah, he would drive down from but, Rochester uh, every I, time we played, and he would want to make it a whole weekend yep. out of it if he could. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were upstairs in this room. I'm playing tapes, and we're trying to figure out the best version of Ico that we had recorded. Uh, and so we're listening to about five of them over and over again. <laughs> I didn't get any sleep that night at all. Uh, <laughs> Those are great, great memories. Can, can give me your favorite. <laughs> well, I was thinking um, there's a lot of favorites, but I think the one that sticks in my mind was Old Homes Day. There was a pavilion in the middle of Island Park. And... Oh man, that thing! I feel like that was. I feel like there was one point at the end of that show where it was not fade away, and the whole place was going up and down in rhythm. 
and it was like it was like those those bridge collapse videos, you know, because the sonic with, rhythms had that whole building moving up and down together, and it felt like it was just going to hit the dirt. You know that they tore that building down after that. I know. Good. <laughs> I think that was pretty smart. But it was a big pavilion. I mean, it was a big space, and. Um, and we rocked it. And, and Sarah, you sang uh, Carly Simon, right? Anticipation. These are, these are the good old days, you know? I mean, yep. th- that was a fabulous gig. singing uh, take me to the river uh-huh that's <laughs> which is cool because the you know the stream was right behind the pavilion there. Uh-huh. you know i lived three blocks from there i grew up three blocks from there and as a little kid um every summer going to the park and going to old homestay was huge to me you know, it was like, oh, it's July, it's Old Homes Week, it's exciting. And yeah. then to be, you know, 17 years old, maybe 18, um, and and being part of it was very, yeah. very exciting for me. Definitely. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people missing that this year, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um one thing I figured out was that when I started singing with the Wild Knight, I was 16. Um, I thought I was a year older, but my mother, I don't, my mother, she had four kids and she put me into school as early as she could because she was sick of having kids at home. <laughs> and she was like, will you take her? She's only four. <laughs> but they did. So I was 16 when I went to the basement. Wow. Infamous. Isn't that, I mean, that's very young. That's very Everybody young. seemed young to me. <laughs> I'm telling you, when we were at, at like Bar sure. 1 at that first gig, I swore everybody was 16, 17, you know, right. with 18 so, being the drinking age. Right. We were younger for sure. And you were definitely the old, the old, were you and, you and, were you older, are you older than Joe or you and Joe? Sam? Yeah, by about 
three years. Okay. So what made you, what made you stick around with these little kids? That were well, uh, they let me in for one thing. And, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. It took, it took a couple weeks, you know, or a couple gigs to, to say, yeah, this is definitely something to hang on to, you know, to stick with. And, uh, I, I definitely fell in love with it. So, so, so interesting story, Sarah. I think I was 15 when Eric Diener, uh, so I'm sitting there in class and so the alphabetical seating. So sitting right behind me was Eric Diener and he looked, you know, this was, um, I couldn't even tell you which class must have been homeroom or something. And, and he just taps me on the shoulder and points to my hand, my right hand with sort of longer fingernails because I was playing classical guitar. And he said, so do you play guitar? And I said, I do play guitar. How did you know? He goes, well, I saw your fingernails. He goes, well, I have a friend who plays drums. My, my name's uh, Eric. Why don't you come on over? I was wondering how you connected. Yeah. So I was 15. Who was the friend? Uh, that was Corey. Corey, who, you know, Eric knew, but, you know, Corey was in a whole different school district. So, um, yeah, I think it all started when, when I, I was 15, Corey was 16. I mean, somewhere in there, you know? Yeah. How did they know? How did they know each other? How did Corey and Corey Eric, Eric know each other? I don't know the answer to that, actually. I don't know. Hey, Ken, I've got some other names to throw out there uh, that we shouldn't forget about. Eric Milbreth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wasn't he the first bass player before Dave stepped in? Yeah, well, second, because Eric Diener picked up the bass for a little while. Oh, okay. Literally just wanting to be able to participate. And uh, and then Eric Milbrath came along, and he actually played the bass. It wasn't just a participation trophy. And, um, <laughs> you know, so Eric... Uh, Diener graciously stepped back, and Eric Milbrath was a uh, uh, absolutely amazing bass player. He was a super assertive, thumb slapping, you know, remarkable player. Huh. Uh, yeah, he was really. Uh, now, how about awesome. Danny Coppins? Danny Coppins on saxophone. He was at the first gig. That's right. There That's right. At, at Williamsville South. At Riegers. If leaving you is easy. Was that Phil Collins' song? Uh, breathing me is easy. Uh, <laughs> that had a big sax solo. I'm trying to remember the sax solos. <laughs> yeah, he played at Rieger's Farm too. Uh, oh, slapping wow, mosquitoes yeah. with the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> that had the acoustic set too. At, yeah, at the Rieger's. that's right. That was a that night. I'm so glad you said that, Ken, because I wanted to ask you both: acoustic, electric, what? What do you like better? Or what do oh, you like? I can't what, what say you one is better than the other. Uh, I like them both. Are equally. you in a different mood when you play electric or acoustic? What kind of mood? I mean, it's a different sound for sure. We know that. But it's got to be a different, a different mindset when you sit down with an electric guitar or with an acoustic guitar. Completely different. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess one lends itself more to uh, danceable party music, you know, where the other one is more folk oriented. Which one's harder uh, to play? Are they harder? Equal difficulty. 
Yeah. It just, but you both it just learned on acoustic guitars and then went electric. Yeah, I mean, I started on steel string, went to classical, which is nylon string, um, then picked up the electric, starting with the Les Paul and ending up with 335 uh, semi-hollow bodies. But then acoustically, at the 12 string, that's what you bring to the campfire to sing and play, Yep. you know, yep. at that setting, and um, both the 6 string and a 12 string. And then after uh, I... After I um, went to college and the nights kept going and I went into my own, you know, pathways here in Pittsburgh. Um, I played in folk orchestras and acoustic was the, you know, with fiddle and, and banjo and, uh, uh, accordion and, uh, Bodron and other things. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, that was just great. Some super, um, collaborators on the music and, and super high energy stuff too. The, the jigs and reels and, um that was a lot of fun too so it's all good you just brought back a memory um playing at maple forest theater and uh dave had brought a friend from miami of ohio back with him uh, on his college break and mm -hmm. uh, they got up and played i don't know i think a paul simon tune or something i'm not sure but uh, uh i think he brought a sitar with him <laughs> that was amazing yes yes <laughs> yes oh my god so Dave was kind of jumping into different things over there. You know, I'm so glad you said that about the sitar because today someone I was I was talking to someone about this this podcast and this interview, uh -huh. and I, I was talking about how how well you two um, handed the baton back and forth in front of that stage, and they said, "Oh, well, somebody has to be George Harrison." And I was like, wait a minute, what does that mean? Somebody has to be George Harrison. <laughs> well, George is definitely not John or Paul, so <laughs> No. Um I think I got the I think that I think there. I mean he, and he's a he's a he was a brilliant brilliant guitarist. I mean yeah. incredible. Um yeah. probably way better than Paul McCartney or John Lennon ever were. But Put in the back a little bit, in the back seat. So, who was that being referred to? I no, not one person. of you guys. Not one of you guys. It was. It was definitely <laughs> an insult at all. It oh, okay. Definitely. Well, I wouldn't take it as an insult. It was an outsider's <laughs> perspective, saying, you know, who's George? Who's the George Harrison? Like, who was? You know, these two guys were out in front. Yeah. Which one of them was the George Harrison? And I was like, neither. <laughs> well, I think what we did say is even though we didn't keep we didn't keep this strictly, I think it was pretty clear that that uh, Mike was Jerry, and that would make me Bobby just by default, which would and oh, that no, would no, no. make you Donna by default. So. Oh no! no. Uh, well, Ken, your uh, hair was more like Jerry. Think. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Definitely. That's true. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Let me ask you guys about playing playing live with the knights with the knights um and picking picking songs cuz Ken you and I talked about that a little bit last week about mm -hmm. how you came up with the set lists and um I just wanted to see what was the communication like on that 
was it everybody throwing ideas in or was it more like what do we want to hear what do we want to experiment with I mean, I would say that we would, you know, we would practice and, and, you know, when we would get together to practice, it was part jam session, part having fun, and then part sort of the emergence of connections that you would make of one song going into another and other things that you could experiment with. And, and, you know, you'd stop that and, and you'd get to the end of one of those that was a full stop and, Joe Polani would say, that was so hot. (laughs) (laughs) In a sort of, sort of, you know, a semi-sarcastic, yet totally earnest, you know, communication that he does. Um, And, and then it would somehow or another then migrate to a set list. So all of a sudden you were doing Grateful Dead into Pink Floyd into something else. And we just would be right there. Um, yeah, so it would happen by in the basement or in the back room in the new room or in in you know wherever else we were practicing. We had a rental practice from for a little while, which was awful actually. <laughs> yeah, we kind of developed a formula. I think kind of uh, you know there was your uh, first half of the set tunes, and then uh, like you say, making connections, uh, and then your melee tunes. Remember, um, <laughs> and of course, it always had to have a drums in space. And, yeah. <laughs> Oh, we did follow that format. That helped a lot. You know, the, the, dead, yeah. the dead, you know, kind of sort of set the tone of the individual songs in the first set and then the second set with things starting to roll into each other and, and having the center point yes. of, of drums in space. And then we would always work towards a, a you know, a big peak in the, in the second half of the second set. And um mm-hmm. But it could come from a whole bunch of different places, right. too, which was really fun to have a yeah, broad exactly. catalog to pull from. You know, we weren't limiting ourselves to the Grateful Dead, although that was certainly the mainstay, uh, you know, at the end of the day. I do remember um, you playing Quinn the Eskimo. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a good one. For sure. Yeah, it was fun being able to, to get these different uh, – great songs and there's so many so much good music out there yep um yeah okay were either of you ever surprised by the big audiences that we got was that ever surprising i was i was definitely surprised yes i never thought that the dead um or you know kinds of wild nights uh before i entered it that band was such a big deal in Williamsville, you know, because uh, we would play that first gig in the city on Hurl Avenue. And yeah, I didn't expect much, maybe 30 people. And wow, there must have been 150 people in there. Yeah. It, it blew my that mind. long skinny bar. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden we started, there was more and more. I mean, it was amazing to have, yeah. you know, these gigs where there was three and 400 people. It was really something. What? Were Why were they? <laughs> Why were there so many people? Uh, I don't know. I I would like to think it was just a good party, you know. I've been getting feedback on these podcasts on Facebook, and I've heard from people that I haven't seen since 1984 or 85, <laughs> who <laughs> who were in my class in high school, and who have said. I came to see you twice and your band was fantastic. Um, people that I, you know, that I wasn't friends with, 
you know, very friendly with everybody. You know, I had no mortal enemies, but um, people that I didn't know very well that came and saw the band and loved the band and still remember seeing the band. Yeah, it was just a magical thing where you're playing in front of a lot of people like that and yeah. you're getting good vibes back from them. It just it's a it just keeps feeding itself back and forth to the point where everybody's having a great time, you know? It's that's the way I felt. And I right. what about you, Cal? I mean, I I think that it, there was uh, it was a bright light. It was friendly. It was accepting and and uh, welcoming to everybody. Like you said, Sarah, it wasn't exclusive at all. It wasn't. It was always everybody was glad to see each other in that setting. And uh, you know, so there was no aggressiveness. There was no negative vibe at all. Yeah. And um, everybody had a good time. That's pretty neat. You know, it's nice to have a non-competitive, non-angst-ridden high school scene to to bring people together around. I mean, you you look at like representations of high school, like Mean Girls or you know, Clicks or whatever else. Yep. That was not what it felt like being at a Wild Nights concert. It was the exact opposite, that everybody was good with each other. Let's have a good time. There's preps and jocks and nerds and everybody all there hanging out together because guess what? They were all on the stage, too. (laughs) That's something that blew my mind about that. Every time that I would see somebody from the football team show up, I would be like, wow, It it was amazing. It was very surprising. I just, I think that, that you guys, Slambas, oh my God. You know, that was my, owned by my seventh grade uh, history teacher, Mr. Wow. McDonald. That's amazing. Did you know that? Wow. Did you, did you not have him? I, I didn't know that he was owned by a teacher. I didn't realize it was a seventh grade teacher. Now I thought people in there were young, but I didn't realize they were that young. No, I don't think, I don't think the seventh graders went, but. I remember going to Slambas, oh my God, and Mr. McDonald was the owner, and I must have been maybe a sophomore in high school. And he knew it. He yeah. did not care. He did not. He was like... I think it was right around that point, though, when the drinking age went from 18 to 21, right? I mean, oh, no, no, it jumped to 19 for, for a year or two. Yeah. yeah and I had a fake idea. All, all thoroughly <laughs> ignored in Buffalo. Right. Did not apply in Buffalo. No. Right. It's because the weather was too harsh. They felt bad for everybody. Everybody drank. It's Buffalo. <laughs> it's yeah, cold. I'm kidding. You, you know, you, you get old enough to drink at 18, and then they're going to take it away from you for right. a year or two. <laughs> That's not yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see. Another couple names of people who came in after you guys left the band was uh, Drew Lefsitz. Uh, oh yeah, I think I, I remember Drew. Yeah, Drew was a genius. Drew Lefsitz. Yeah, Very Drew. Yeah, I overlapped with Drew for sure. Actually, Drew. Drew was before Joe, I think. No, he was in between. Oh, he was in between. <laughs> yeah, was Gavin, guys were, Gavin was. Yeah, Gavin when was you guys were all off Joe. to school, I wanted to continue it going, you know, because I, I was done with college and all that. Sure. And um, so uh, Corey's friend Drew hooked up with us, and, and yeah, uh, Mark Marzak, I think, started playing about that time. DJ was still around too, uh, but he did a lot of singing at that time. And uh-huh. uh, Jim O'Neill joined us from Hamburg. And Jim was a bass player with us from uh, 86 till about 
2000. Um, after about 93, 94, we would get together about once a year to these almost like reunion type gigs. Uh, so yeah, Jim was a great, great addition. And of course, Mark Marzak. You know, Mark, uh, as soon as DJ left, um, Mark took over. And uh, he's been a, a player ever since. Mike, do you remember? Well, I couldn't leave them out because of all these, all these uh, oh. podcasts, uh, these names weren't mentioned. So No, well. Yeah, no, that's what you don't want I appreciate to know it. is that I, I, I definitely want to put um, uh, Mark on a podcast soon. So, um, okay. yeah, okay. no, absolutely. Um, do you remember playing at Mark's wedding? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> David forgotten, but I'll never forget it because I was in New Jersey and Sarah had asked me to come and sing You've Got a Friend at their wedding right. for their first song yeah. together. At the Saturn Club. Yep. Beautiful place. And right. I drove the eight hours, you know, alone in my little Dodge Colt, um, singing and singing that song and rewinding it and singing it over and over and over again. And I hadn't seen you or Dave in a while. And um, we practiced in the back hallway. <laughs> like we maybe yeah. did it twice, I think. And that was so beautiful because it was so easy. You know, we, we, yeah, we'd all done it. We'd all been together before. It was so easy. And um, you said to me, someone's been practicing. And you smile. <laughs> I'll never forget that because it was so nice that day. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a long sad time. thing that happens with memories. I know. It could yeah, be. I, know. <laughs> I do remember. Oh, it was a great job, Sarah. Great job on the song. Okay. I remember doing that. And then I remember this goofy guy coming up to me afterwards and saying, hey, that was good. Uh, you know how I thought it was going to be horrible. You know how when you go to a friend's wedding and they have one of their their you know buddies come up and yeah. do something and it sucks. He goes, "Well, you are you are great. Uh, can I buy you a drink?" <laughs> I was like, "No, <laughs> go away." Oh. Um, yeah, uh, Mike. When did you start working with Rolf too? He he joined. I don't oh, know that he's been mentioned. Uh, well, I've known Rolf um, in the bluegrass circles. Plus, he was a bass player for with Sonic Garden. Which was another ah. offshoot of you know the, the Buffalo yep. Dead bands. Uh, yeah, that was that was UB oriented. I think most of those guys were UB and they put that together. Uh, so there was, of course, Crumbs of Insanity right after us, and uh -huh. it was kind of like our big competition at the time. Then Sonic Garden came around, and Corey started hanging around with them and playing a lot. Uh, Joe incorporated into the band, um, and uh, Ralph uh, when that band disbanded. He hooked up with Dave, and they got together with, uh, with this thing called Acoustic Forum. That played at uh -huh, Broadway Joe's. Yeah, it was a really good party. They had a thing going every week down there, and uh, a lot of good players played with them. And so um, then there was this thing called the Williamsville Mountain Pig Band, which uh, Bill Crocker got started uh, with Tommy Crocker and Dan, uh, uh, yeah, Dan Motes, and I think Joe and Dave were part of that first part of the band, and then. Uh, uh, Joe left and Moats went to California. And uh, so there was a couple openings. They got me involved and we brought in Rolf at the time, he played fiddle. And uh, he's a great player. He's just a all around great string instrument player. 
A lot of different overlaps there. Uh, George Duran playing acoustic, I remember that, you know, right. early on. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned oh. him. Yeah, we, we had a couple of great gigs with him, remember? Yeah, it was Beaches. wonderful. And he had, I remember his, his, he was a songwriter too, so he had that very fine day. And, oh, yeah. You know, I, yeah, he was, he was terrific, beautiful voice, Neil Young like. Yeah. He's a bigger And then I remember player. going to DC when Dave had was before Dave had uh, returned to Buffalo to really return to being a full time musician. Yeah. But he was still playing professionally down in DC and he was playing mandolin at the right. Wolf Trap, I think. He was playing with a, a, a band that had a female lead. I don't even remember who it was. Oh, that country um, new wave band or some sort? <laughs> yeah, something yeah. like that. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, all sorts of different, you know, pathways. And there was a time where I was writing and Corey came down and recorded down here in Pittsburgh. And we huh. created yeah, a couple of different tracks, which was really fun. And Corey's written now and Dave's writing now. It's yeah. really wonderful. All the different pathways. And I have to say for, you know, Corey and Dave, and there's a couple who have really become professional musicians. Yes. Um, you know, for their careers. And uh, that's pretty impressive, frankly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Gentlemen, very I'm very <laughs> grateful. Um, and I definitely want Mike to invite me back to sing again soon. So don't forget, Mike. Of course. Of course. <laughs> don't forget. Um, no. But no, shit. Okay. Um, what was that? <laughs> nothing. 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 <laughs> Are they pulling the plug on us? Oh, <laughs> yes, I am pulling the plug on you guys. Hey, 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 Mike, did were you with us when we saw Crosby, Stills, and Nash? At, yes, yeah, in fact, they Memorial Auditorium. That. Yeah, remember and we went downstairs and we saw David Crosby? <laughs> yeah, and just then staring we went, into space. Then we went on the Stephen Stills bus, yes, um, and met my cousin, Michael Finnegan, Mike Finnegan, yeah. And Stephen Stills comes onto the bus and slaps me on the back. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> if I had ever been it before, I would probably know just what to do. Don't you? If I had ever been it before, on another time around the wheel, I would probably know just how to deal. And Michael Finnegan pulled me aside. I think I shared this with you. Pulled me aside at that moment. He goes, so what are you doing next year? I said, oh, I think the band's going really well. He goes, you're not going to college? I said, oh, well, I got in and I could go. And, but this is really cool. And, you know, he's like, look, being a professional musician is really cool. Let me, you know, be clear about that. Here I am, you know, touring and doing this stuff. But go to college so you have a choice. And he said, I have, I'm away from my kids six months of the year, nine months out of the year. I'm touring all the time. He says, give yourself the choice. Go to college and figure it out from there. Yeah. And if the band happens, the band happens. <laughs> that was one of those moments that I yeah. still remember to this day. Yeah, give yourself some options instead of being stuck riding around on a bus with Steve Stills <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Do you remember his, his back room? Remember the yeah. back on that bus? Oh my God! What a, he was quite a redneck. Very <laughs> successful redneck. 
Oh, yeah. What a great voice. I love Stephen. Oh, yeah. Such a great player. And I mean, to see them up on stage in the Memorial Auditorium and then go backstage and get to be on the tour buses, each of the three of them having their own bus. And yeah, that was something. That makes yeah. an impression. I, yeah, thanks yeah, a lot for I, doing that. I never would have met anybody that big. If it wasn't for that connection you had with your cousin. Yeah, it was my dad. Uh, my dad's mom was Mary Finnegan, and uh, the Finnegan family from Troy, Ohio, was part of that family and stayed connected. And uh, I got to see them at Radio City Music Hall. And same thing, you know, kind of calling the cousins and they arrange tickets. You get the producer tickets. So you're in the middle of the fourth row, and I had. Um, I had Michael Douglas on one side of me <laughs> and um, Peter Fonda was on the other side of me. Oh, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was before the selfies, so there was nothing to do but to yeah, watch the show. Enjoy it. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to wrap, but don't hang up. Okay. We're, we don't get to talk to each other, Sarah. No, so. I know. That's why we're going to keep we're going to keep going. We can keep going. I just have to have to I have to put you. You do the technology thing, and we we're allowed to keep talking. It won't mess you up. Oh, cool. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'm Sarah Smith. This is Girls on Film podcast, and I am out. Now party time is upon us all. Wild nights, now smoking brew with wilder nights of rock and roll. Rocking and rolling for you. So don't be shy, come join our fun. Come dance and sing along. And you can have a wild night too. Join the band and get it on. Work lies behind us and work lies ahead. But for the time being, man, let's just fucking party instead.